It's good to be here with you all. Um, Our text this morning comes out of Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, Passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go. And do likewise. When I was last here, we were in Luke chapter 5. And it was early in the ministry of Christ. He was just starting to call disciples. And by the time we get to this passage, he's well into his ministry. He's casting out demons, healing the sick all of which served as a testimony of the kingdom which had come. A new eschaton, a new age had come, bringing into fruition all that the scripture had prior spoken of. But there were those that this didn't sit well with. Namely, those who sought to find their own righteousness in the deeds of the law. Now, the first table of the law instructs us how to relate to a holy God. The second table instructs us how to relate to our fellow fallen brethren. Theological liberals tend to focus on the second table of the law and neglect the first. But those of us who tend to be much more orthodox and confessional tend to focus on the first table of the law and neglect the second. 
we see this playing out before our eyes today. We've got heterodoxy with the emphasis on humanity and stern adherence to orthodoxy without humanity. What Jesus shows in this parable is that the spirit of the word is not about rights or how we protect ourselves under the pretext of preserving orthodoxy. But rather it's about how we are obligated one to another in fulfillment of orthodoxy. You see, friends, orthodoxy and hospitality are not mutually exclusive. Nor are we forced to choose between one or the other. Hospitality should be an extension of orthodoxy. The condition that I find that we share with this lawyer is that very often we have a very good understanding of what the word says and a very poor understanding of what the word means. In our circles, we know full well what God requires. We know the covenants. We know soteriology. We know ecclesiology and so forth. But we tend to seek to restrict our obligations to our fellow creatures. In this passage, we're going to examine three headings. One, the question. Two, the contrast. And three, the call to action. The question, verses 25 through 29. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Like I said, Jesus is starting to gain a reputation. And in the midst of one of his teachings, a lawyer stands up and questions Jesus regarding eternal life. Now, this lawyer wasn't asking Jesus a question that he necessarily needed an answer to or as if this was something that he was seeking Christ's counsel on. What he was doing was testing Jesus's knowledge of the law. You see, friends, it was common knowledge that Jesus was not formally trained in the law. Those who were formally trained in the law constituted a very small circle. Jesus yet spoke as an authority on the law. And so Jesus responds by asking this lawyer as best he knew the law, what the law had to say about eternal life. And the lawyer in turn responds by summarizing two passages. Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, to which Jesus responds in the affirmative. But remember, the lawyer is trying to test 
Jesus, essentially expose his lack, his lack of knowledge of the law, showing him to be an imposter and to see if Jesus had anything different than what was written in the law of Moses. His initial question was merely a pretext for his real question, which was, who is my neighbor? Notice how the lawyer does not respond. The real question is not about loving the Lord. The real question is about restricting his obligations towards his fellow man, wanting to define who his lawyer, who his neighbor is by imposing limits, narrowing the scope and setting a framework to ensure that he does not go beyond it. He thought that he had the first table covered and that the second table had very little to do with the first. And in his attempt to justify himself, the lawyer is doing what lawyers do, which is trying to build a case. He wants to frame that there are particular people who he considers who are and who are not his neighbors. The question, who is my neighbor, itself presupposes qualifications and restrictions, setting bounds upon hospitality, and it turns the neighbor into an object. Calvin writes, the hypocrisy of men is chiefly detected by means of the second table. For while they pretend to be eminent worshipers of God, they openly violate charity towards their neighbors. The lawyer practiced this evasion in order that, concealed under the false mask of holiness, he might not be brought forth to light. So then, Aware that the test of charity would prove unfavorable to him, he seeks concealment under the word neighbor that he might not be revealed to be a transgressor of the law. But we have seen that on the subject, the law was corrupted because they reckoned none to be their neighbors, but those who were worthy of it. Hence, too, this principle was received among them that we have a right to hate our enemies. I find that modern Western evangelicalism tends to follow the example set by this lawyer. We consider our neighbor in the objective, wanting to restrict who is and who is not our neighbor and set limits upon our charity. Now, most of us are completely aware of how we got to this point. As much as we attempt to frame our rights as a biblical issue, it's not a biblical issue. It's actually a post-enlightenment issue. We're seeing this play out today before our eyes in the battle of rights. We frame the rights of X against the rights of Y. And in this narrative that we just read, it would have been the rights of the priest and the Levite set against the rights of the victim. Now, the priest and the Levite were justifiably well within their rights to pass by on the other side. But they violated the second table of the law. When our principium 
is from a position of rights, we can justify being uncharitable, just like the priest and the Levite. Under the guise of preserving orthodoxy, tradition, or anything else. The reality is that today we are more influenced by Immanuel Kant than the scriptures in this area. For it was during the Enlightenment when the ethics of charity shifted from the individual onto abstract issues. Where someone stood on a particular issue defined how we related to them even without regard to the lack of evidences of personal ethics in their own lives. When we reduce who is and who is not our neighbor down to who we perceive to share our values and who is and who is not worthy and place limits to restrict our responsibility or who we should or should not show mercy to, then we've shown we really don't grasp the scriptures call to love your neighbor as yourself, just like this lawyer. This leads us to our second heading, the contrast, verses 30 through 36. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. Jesus does not give a direct answer to the lawyer, but instead responds with a story. And in it, there's a cast of five characters. You have the victim, the robbers, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. Of those five characters, the story mostly primarily revolves around the deeds of the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. You see, the priest and the Levite prided themselves as being privileged not only among the nations, but among their own people. They saw themselves as God's sacred heritage. In fact, they would have, they would have recited the Shema, prayer that very morning, the Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The neglect for the victim 
would have been sandwiched in their declaration of their love of the Lord. They gave assent to the first table of the law, but not the second. You see, friends, the reality is if you don't follow the second table regarding your fellow man, then you're really not following the first. How we relate to our fellow man is indicative to how we relate to God, as well as validates or invalidates our claims of loving the Lord. Outside of the temple, the priest and the Levite were completely dysfunctional. Whatever ritual purity they were wanting to protect was no excuse for their neglect. Friends, there is no bifurcation between loving God and how we treat our fellow creatures. Good theology always accompanies good works. Now, in contrast, the Samaritan. Christ contrasts the priest and the Levite to the Samaritan, who though the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan were racially kin and they resided close one to another, they stood far apart. Let me provide some historical context on the Samaritans. Around the 8th century BC, Israel was in and out of idolatry. And as a judgment, they were sent into captivity by the Assyrians. Now, by this time, Israel was two countries with a, with a, that shared a border. You had Israel proper to the north and Judah to the south. Judah to the south, some 200 years before this entry, they were led captive by Babylon. So, mind you, both countries had both both had been gone had been taken into captivity Israel to the north by the Assyrians Judah to the south by the Babylonians now the Babylonians and the Assyrians though they were used by God to scourge Israel his people they had different methods of holding these uh, holding the people captive Babylon to the south typically allowed the people to maintain their heritage and their religion. And what they did was they took the best of the best and the brightest and folded them into the service of the Babylonian Empire. We read of this in the book of Daniel. But the Assyrians were the exact opposite. They sought to demoralize their uh, captive subjects. And what they did was they wanted to do away with their religion, their heritage, and their national identity. And they did this through intermarriage. They would take other subjugated peoples and locate them, relocate them rather, throughout the territory. And this resulted in a mishmash of heritage and religion with no particular national identity. The result of this policy was the Samaritans. They were a Judeo-Canaanite ethnic hybrid, and they were an amalgam of conquered peoples. We read in 2 Kings 17 that not only were they racially mixed with their Gentile neighbors, but they also incorporated idolatry along with their Jewish religion. This formed a syncretic hybrid 
religion, and as such, they were seen as being unclean by their Jewish kin. So the resentment from Jews toward Samaritans centered around two things. First, their racial impurity, that is, they were not strictly descended from Abraham. And second, their religious impiety. That is because they were not allowed to worship in Jerusalem. They built their own temple at Mount Gerizim where they said and will still say that it truly belongs because it's the location where Abraham offered Isaac. Now, friends, this is completely contrary to the law. The Old Testament specifically, specifically gives instructions that Solomon was the one who was to build the temple and it was to be located in Jerusalem. So by all means, from, their, uh, from the perspective of their uh, Jewish cultic worship combined with Gentile idolatry, they were seen as heretics proper from a perspective of Jewish orthodoxy. In fact, if a Samaritan even converted to Judaism, they first had to renounce their commonly held view of the sanctity of Mount Gerizim. They folded pagan customs into their watered-down Hebraic worship, and Samaritans were heretics in the most proper sense in this narrative. But the animosity swung both ways. It wasn't just Jew towards Samaritan, but it was Samaritan towards Jews as well. According to Josephus in his Antiquities, during the invasion of Antiochus III in the second century before Christ, Samaritans actively sold Jews into Greek slavery. During the persecution of his son, Antiochus Epiphanes, also Antiochus IV, the Samaritans escaped the fate awaiting the Jews, and what they did was they repudiated any connection with Judaism whatsoever. They went so far as to dedicate their own temple at Mount Gerizim to the worship of the pagan god Jupiter. Friends, by the time we get to the narrative here in Luke 10, that animosity is still very much alive. What we see is an extravagant act of compassion by the Samaritan. He completely disregards the victim's culture as well as their people's mutually strained history. And he only sees the victim's need. He not only ministers to the victim, but he ministers to his own peril. The robbers could have very much still been around. The Samaritan himself could have been accused of the robbery. He further risked being ostracized by his own community. One theologian writes, The glory of true love. One, it inquires not. Two, it hesitates not. Three, it is not afraid. Four, it tarries not. Five, it willingly sacrifices and leaves nothing 
unfinished. Friends, what we see here is a radical shift. The Samaritan does not attempt to qualify the victim's worthiness. The Samaritan doesn't see putting himself out as an inconvenience, nor does he attempt to blame the victim for his own misfortune. The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? Jesus answers, who is a neighbor? We have to be a neighbor to everyone around us who is in need. As long as we qualify who is and who is not our neighbor, then just like this lawyer, and by extension the priest and the Levite, we seek to limit our obligations. Jesus broadens the scope. Effectively, what can I do to make myself a neighbor? Their answer is that we're a neighbor to anyone who's in need without regard to race, class, religion, or politics. Yes, I'm saying that you have to make yourself a neighbor to a Democrat. It's impossible to minister to people when they are the objects of our contempt or when we're engaged against them in a battle of rights. Being a neighbor does not mean that we treat everybody like our brother and sister in the faith. Our neighbors are still, first and foremost, the subjects of evangelism. But what being a neighbor means is that we treat creatures as creatures with whom we share the image of God. This leads us to our third heading the call to action. Verse 37. He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The Samaritan did for the victim what the victim would not have done for the Samaritan had the situation been reversed. What loving your neighbor as yourself means is that I wouldn't do anything less for someone else than I would want done for myself. What loving your neighbor as yourself means is that I wouldn't want anything less for you and yours than I would want for me and mine. It means I wouldn't stand for anything less for you and yours then I would stand for me and mine. It means I wouldn't want anything less for someone else's child than I would want for my own. What the Samaritan did was he put himself in the victim's shoes and he led with compassion. Now, what loving your neighbor does not mean is that we affirm people in their sin or that they're spiritually fine the way that they are. What it means is that we recognize their need and we're willing to meet it. What the Samaritan did was he put himself in the shoes of the victim 
and did what he himself would have been blessed by. That is, what he would have expected for himself had he been in the shoes of the victim. One pastor put it like this. The first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? When we look at all of the hot-button issues we see in the political-cultural arena today, through the lens of loving your neighbor as yourself, making yourself a neighbor, they take on a different meaning. It seems to be quite fashionable among those of us who are confessional orthodox to do anything from being perceived or accused of being a liberal. Now, some of you might be thinking, Brother David, you're, you're going a little bit far here. You're, you're really stretching it. Friends, I assure you, I'm as confessional, Calvinistic, and covenantal as the next man. Maybe even more so. I, I wave the 1646 proudly. But mind you, in this story, Jesus uses a heretic as an example of compassion and then gives the command, not the suggestion, but the command that we go and do the same. Let that sink in. In light of this passage, I have a hard time thinking that on that great day, the Lord is going to hold it against us and say that we were too compassionate, that we were too hospitable, that we did too much for those who had nothing in common with us. In conclusion, the problem is that we are too much like this lawyer. It's all too easy for us to pass by on the other side when we see our fellow man's troubles. Think it's not our problem or that they're getting what they deserve. How we obligate ourselves to others Making ourselves a neighbor is a reflection of how Christ obligated himself, obligated himself to us and made himself our neighbor. 18th century Anglican pastor, commentator Robert Hawker writes, If the Samaritan went to the wounded man and poured in oil and wine, bound up his mangled body, set him on his own beast, brought him to an inn and took care of him, Jesus still more, the Son of Man, in our nature, hath remembered us in our lowest estate. He hath indeed not barely poured in the oil and wine to heal the wounds of sin, but the precious balsam of his own blood. He hath set us not on his own beast, but borne us in his arms and carried us in his bosom. He hath brought us to his church, to the richest inn of plentiful provisions, in means of free and sovereign grace and ordinances of gospel worship. 
And having washed our wounds in the fountain, he hath opened for sin and for uncleanness. He hath took care of us with all this care. Friends, we minister to the Spirit in the preaching of the gospel, declaring the risen Lord, preaching repentance and faith in Christ. Likewise, we meet the temporal earthly needs. We make ourselves a neighbor. We don't ask, who is my neighbor? We make ourselves a neighbor. We lead with compassion. As we have received of the Lord, so we also give. Let us pray. Father, we exalt and magnify your high and holy name. We thank you, Jesus, that when sin and the world had robbed us and stripped us and left us not half dead, but dead, you came along. You had compassion on us. You gave us life. You paid the full price. Father, I pray that our compassion would not just be restricted to those who are like us, but, Father, that we would lead with compassion towards those who are dead and dying, that we would be quick to minister to them without restriction that we wouldn't try to make this into a battle of our rights Father that doesn't convert anybody but that we would actively show the love of Jesus that we would lead with compassion teach us O Lord Teach us, O God, what this means, what it looks like, how we can carry this out in our daily lives to make ourselves a neighbor, that we would be the neighbor, that we would be the one there quick to minister, quick to show hospitality, quick to show the love of God, quick to share the gospel. Do this work in your church, and we give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen.